episode 54 of Panoramic Outdoors is coming at you hot. Got myself here, Tristan, Simisami Chase, and we got Sheldon over in Brandon. Join us remotely. Say hi, boys. What's going on? Uh, We got a decoy carving specialist on the show today, and we're uh, really excited about the content bringing and uh, also just the, the knowledge coming from this gentleman. Uh, but before we get into that, uh, we got the three burning questions for you guys here. So let's start off. What's on the grill? I'll start off this one. Uh, I've been uh, I've been playing around a little bit with uh, fermenting foods, so it's like the the old way to preserve foods, and it's the new eras changed to like uh, pickling with vinegar and stuff like that. So. Fermenting is a little bit different. It's with uh, salt brine and it creates some good bacteria. So it's actually pretty healthy for you. Good for your tummy. Uh, so I've been uh, messing around with <clears throat> making sauerkraut the last few weeks here. And what I did was uh, cracked open the first batch of this regular sauerkraut. I got three different batches on the go that I'm playing around, <clears throat> playing around with. Sorry. And, uh, man, I slapped some of that on a, one of those, uh, venison jalapeno cheddar bratwurst that we made this fall, this winter. Oh, yeah. That's a good combo. Wow. dang a Yeah. Shelly, what are you firing up there? Um, hey, Chase, do you remember that time we were in the ice fishing shack and I made that, like, steak sandwich with, uh, kind of like a, like a relish? Oh, like in a pan. Oh, buddy, yeah. So I was the other day. I was like, I'm gonna have a salad. Blah blah blah. Like boring. So then I cooked up some pork for my salad. Some some strips of pork. And then I'm like, you know what? Instead of putting a sauce on the salad, I'm gonna make this relish up, and then like throw it in the in the fridge for like an hour before my salad, so it's nice and cold. So I did that. Like tomatoes. It had you know a whole like little like yellow red uh, tomatoes in it. It was just it was so good. Threw that on top of the salad with some pork and some some fresh or not fresh but cucumbers, and uh, man, that was just delicious. And it was like a great alternative than just like your normal ranch, you know, dressing or something. It was like this rich, really rich, um, med like medley of of vegetables. So it was actually really really good. Man, I love that relish that that you made there. We should actually toss that up on social media. And I'm thinking a little recipe that that is like. Oh, so good. Yeah, yeah, it is great. The, uh, if we're talking about on the grill here, I'm not even going to talk about myself because uh, I haven't done much lately, but I'm going to redirect the chase here and um, notice that, Chase, you cooked up that uh, drum we caught on the on the weekend and uh, you put it on the pit barrel. How did that turn out? It wasn't on the pit barrel. Oh, um, right, that's open fire. Yeah, yeah right. I, I grilled that over the, uh, I just made a fire in my fire pit, and I got that little, that grilling grate that I toss up and uh, blackened that up, and it's it's uh, turned out phenomenal. I mixed up the, uh, the drum's a little bit of an oilier fish, and it's, it's got a beautiful texture to it. Great flavor. It's not very fishy at all. And... But just to cut that oil a bit, I, I mixed up a couple different uh, 
couple, couple different things. I made uh, bruschetta mix, and uh, I made a peach jalapeno cilantro salsa kind of thing, and I just put them on uh, some toasted French bread and drizzled it, drizzled it all <laughs> in uh, balsamic uh, reduction, and it was top-notch, man. I don't know if I'll ever throw throw away another drum in my life. Yeah, not only that, but like I, you sent that one picture, and you're like, "What? I don't even know what it'd be called." Your placement on the plate looked unbelievable. I was like, "What the hell is this guy, Gordon Ramsay, or what's what's going on here?" <laughs> I'm stepping it up. It's Lightroom, man. It's all Lightroom. That's funny. <laughs> what's on the tap, fellas? Um, yeah, on the tap. Uh, for me, honestly, it, it's been. Uh, since our last podcast, there hasn't really been anything that I've tried that's new. So um, I guess I'll hand it over to you guys. I loop back to uh, the Pilsner by TCB. I, it was uh, things have been getting hot, and I found that the Pilsner, they're not making their cowboy cure right now. And the, the Pilsner is a uh, is the next best cure to a hot summer's day I've been finding. You say the cowboy cure? Is that the one when we had one? Okay. We had one can. No, I've never tried it, and you just had to snag it up and like drink in one sip. <laughs> Man, I, Was love, that the cowboy? I, I love it so much, and I didn't know that you hadn't tried it, and I didn't know that we only had one. But I did <laughs> I did steal it from you. You're right. And uh, that brings us to our last one there, which is uh, what's on the turntable? Shelly, you got anything there? Yeah, I guess the the one I've mentioned him before. His name is Mitch Glans. He's from out west in like uh, Alberta, and he's got a single um, that I, that I've listened to quite a bit, um, and it's called Wander. Um, and he's got a couple other songs too that that I like as well. But you know, it's a, a Canadian artist. Give him some support. Go over there and check out uh, check out some of his music. It's, he's a good uh, country singer. So that's what's on my turn table today. I've been uh, listening to a little bit of uh, Mandolin Orange, they're called. Oh, yeah. Wildfire? Yeah. They got some wicked sound and uh, nice duets and stuff. So it's, uh, I don't know, good music. They uh, they have that hot mandolin happening in their musical ensemble for sure. And didn't Sorry, didn't Del Barber say that mandolin players were weird? Or was that still guitar players? It's steel, steel guitar, the steel guitar yeah. guys. Yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah, but maybe maybe mandolin too. Who knows? Uh, it for me here lately. It's been uh, uh, I've been listening to uh, Blake Bergwin and Bell Plain, a couple uh, Saskatchewan country artists, and uh, rather talented and uh, can sing in harmony rather well. So if you're you're interested in that kind of thing, I'd recommend checking them out. All right, so that made us, again, we survived our three burning questions. So congratulations, fellas. You made it. And uh, But uh, bringing us to our guest here, Pat Gregory from Chicago, or uh, Central Illinois, not Chicago, my apologies, uh, but a Blackhawks fan nonetheless. And uh, we, uh, we noticed Pat on social media, specifically Facebook, for his decoy carving. Um, just a phenomenal decoy carver, able to bring just a tremendous amount of realism to those carvings. And uh, 
now sharing it with the world. So uh, if you haven't yet, give Pat a follow on Facebook. Uh, he's, he's dedicated his time now to sharing that and sharing his passion. Um, he was able to come onto the podcast today and share his knowledge with us, share some of his insights into carving, uh, shares activities, and also like we had some pretty cool chats about duck hunting in general. Yeah, uh, really cool dude. I love how he was... They just went through like a tornado warning and a power outage there and then was like, okay, I'm good to go now, <laughs> you know, ready to podcast. Yeah, totally. I was like, hey man, like take care of your family, like make sure everyone's safe. And he's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah. I'm good to go now. Yeah. Anyways, he's just, uh, just a phenomenal guy passing on these traditions and, and, uh, I don't know. I, I really enjoyed our conversations with him and. I hope we can chat with him in the future again sometime. Yeah, one thing that he was saying, what was that beer that he liked? Was it called Fat Tire? Fat Tire, yeah. So he referenced this beer called Fat Tire, and so we uh, took the took that opportunity and gave him the invite to come up to uh, Canada. And the next time he's here in Manitoba, we're going to give him a Trans Canada, a Trans Canada beer, and we just got to give it a huge thank you to them. They're a huge supporter of our podcast and. Uh, you know we can't thank them enough so if you're ever in, in winnipeg go to 1290 keniston check out their tap room check out the food that they have they also got like merchandise in the store there so you can pick up beer um but yeah help them because they help us and uh yeah it's all good man here's a manitoba promise for you if pat's up here and he's in our residence we're giving him more than one trans canada <laughs> You'll give him the cowboy beer. <laughs> yeah, well, I didn't go that far. Let's let's uh, let's be real here, but uh, yeah. So uh, turn up the volume knob there, folks, and we hope you enjoy this one as much as we did. So, no questions then. Uh, none. Let's let's roll. Okay, we'll hop right into it then. And so, I don't know if you had a chance to listen to any of our podcasts, Pat, but. Uh, we uh we'd like to start them off by asking our guests five burning questions and it's just really to get a sense of uh who you are and uh where you're coming from and uh i'll let chase take the lead on the questions here they're meant to be a bit rapid fire but we go down a few rabbit holes every once in a while (laughs) no pressure no pressure so uh you're coming up on your on your uh last meal that that you have before you depart this wonderful place. What uh, what's going to be on your plate? Uh, duck wraps on the grill. Duck wraps, uh, preferably preferably canvas back, marinated in teriyaki, wrapped in bacon with uh, portobello mushrooms. Oh man, that <laughs> sounds good. We're we're uh, we're pretty fond of the uh, bacon wrapped duck also up here. I can see you thought yeah. about this. <laughs> uh, um, nice. what what would you wash it down with um probably a, a fat tire um you guys got fat tire up by you no but I've, I've had them when i've been down south and they're they're a nice beer yeah yeah i uh i got hooked on them uh, we do some uh, big water loud hunting on the mississippi river for divers you know and um uh, buddy got me hooked on him, so um, kudos to him. <laughs> so, not a bad thing yeah. to be hooked on for washing down no, some no. some bacon wrapped duck. Um, 
not sure if you're much of a music fan at all, but uh, if you had one last concert to go to, um, we'll say anyone alive or dead, who would you who would you see? Oh man, alive or dead? Yeah, you know, I, I never got to see him live, and he's gone now. But uh, I'd have to go see Merle Haggard. Oh yeah, that'd be yeah, a great show. I'd have to go see. Merle Haggard. I love Merle Haggard. I, I carve a, you know, I'm just going to tell you guys, I carve a lot of decoys to Merle Haggard. <laughs> nice. I like that. <clears throat> um, obviously, you're a big, huge waterfowl guy. And uh, if you had one waterfowl species to hunt for the rest of your life, what would you be going after? Yeah, it'd have to be Bluebill. Um, I mean, I love Canvas Peck and I love them all. You know, I'll just be honest with you, being a carver, uh, you know, I've carved every species of duck, you know, in North America, but I got a real soft spot for the bluebills. Um, you know, they're, 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 we can talk about it a little bit tonight, but we uh, we do a fair amount of banding of bluebills down here on the Mississippi. Mm. And uh, most of the banded bluebills in North America that people harvest are, are from our bands. And so we've banded probably over 25,000 in, in probably the last 15 years. So just, I just love bluebills. That's pretty impressive. So you got a, a special, a deep in relationship with that bird, obviously. You must like the big water then. I got a, I got a soft spot for them though. I, I mean, I really do, you know, um, Hey, I'm a hunter, but I'm also a conservationist. And, um, you know, after hunting season's over, uh, we head over the Mississippi and for the entire month of March, we actually uh, ban bluebills. You know, that's a species that's kind of in peril. Um, they, they, we, we really don't have a great pulse on what's declining their numbers. But um, um, you know, we're you know, biologists are really trying to figure that out. And um, you know, hopefully, we'll get to the root of it, and and uh, they'll start to build again because they were a species at one time that were just in great, great numbers. Um, and it's not hunting or anything. It's, it, it's, it's, uh, you know, there are other factors, uh, but, uh, um, yeah, it, it'd have to be bluebills. Awesome. Awesome. And, uh, if you weren't carving decoys and hunting ducks, what do you think you'd be doing? Oh man. Do you have any other passions or uh, pursuits that you delve into? I don't think I'd be breathing. Um, <laughs> I mean, that's that's not even a fair question, man. Um, yeah, we can we can leave wow. it at that. We can leave it at that. I like that answer. <laughs> Nobody's ever asked me that, Chase. Wow, this is uh, this is a special night. <laughs> <laughs> We're digging deep tonight. Yeah, I'll tell you what, though, the beat uh, maybe um, I, I do love flat art. You know, I I uh, did some flat art. Um, back in college, um, you know, like drawings and paintings and such. And, you know, the decoys have really taken over uh, my life. And, and so I really haven't been able to do much flat art. Every now and then I'll do a little bit for my wife. I might draw her a songbird or something. But, yeah, I, I'd say I, I'd probably try some flat art, you know, uh, mostly wildlife and decoy, you know, probably ducks, geese, and, and decoys. But, uh, Probably some flat art. Certainly have that artist blood uh, instilled in you there, so that makes yeah. sense. And, and the other big one I'm saving, man, is is fly fishing. I've never fly fished, but man, I've got a 
I've got a real um, hunkering to do some fly fishing. I, that, that sounds fun, and I'd love to build my own flies and catch some fish on my own flies. That'd be that'd be sweet. I guess you could probably make a similar comparison to that as a as a waterfowl hunter and carving your own decoys and hunting hunting over your own decoys. So um, I can definitely Absolutely. see that they're that relationship. Lures. Yeah, they're both lures, right? You yeah. know, and and uh, they both lure you know um something within your grasp and so anyways yeah fly fishing i think would be would be a, a neat thing to do but i haven't done it i haven't done any of that yet nice all right so our fifth and final burning question here we have for you is uh the best conservation group and um if you're gonna say delta we might have to preclude it just because we know you got a special place for delta <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, um, I am partial to Delta, but there's a reason for that. Maybe we'll talk a little bit about that tonight, but uh, uh, I, I am partial to Delta for a lot of reasons. But, you know, they're all good. I mean, I like I like Ducks Unlimited. Hey, everybody's got a niche in the ecosystem, right? You know, everybody's got a purpose, and Delta has a purpose. The U has a purpose. Other conservation, local conservation groups have a purpose i mean we've got we've got a good local one around here uh, in illinois central Illinois. so um I, I i do lean toward delta yeah i guess i guess uh i mean all the conservation groups you you look at they all kind of cover something a little bit different right and and um when i take a step back and look at things not one does everything the same and and uh i mean there's so much room for for conservation groups to uh, to go after something out there you know it's it's uh there's definitely that that uh diversity right between groups there, there is and and they're good for us um, you know they conservation groups engage us right i mean you know we're just yeah i hate to say it this way but we're just hunters we're we're, we're kind of out here in the ecosystem we're in our little niche and in what we do, but you know, conservation groups are good because they get us to think broader, right? I mean, it's you know, I, I don't know if you guys have studied much of the history of all this. You know, I mine's more so on the waterfowl side, but you know, you can you go all the way back to like the origins of Delta. I mean, that's that's turn of the century stuff. Um, you know, they've always been uh, trying to engage and and manage our resources and, and be good stewards of what we've been given. And the thing I like about like the deltas, the DUs, even the local conservation groups is to get us to think broader, you know, to think about the resources we're hunting. How do we balance them? You know, how, um, you know, um, how can we um, save habitat? Um, how can we help, ducks that are in peril how can we like a big one here in illinois is chronic waste with our deer you know how can we intervene and help manage that right you know so i i don't know i just i just really think that for a sportsman you know these conservation groups are good for us because they engage us and get us to think outside of even even hunting you know um and for a lot of good reasons 
Yeah, that's a very good point about expanding our horizons. Uh, getting together with like-minded people, but also you know, with different skill sets, different understandings of ecology, that kind of thing, right? So I could see where sure. we'd have great value derived from that. Sure, you know, and and um, hey, you know, get get our butts out of the seat and do something, right? You know, I mean, I'll be honest with you, um, this this bluebell banding thing I use for an example. You know, it was something that hey, I was a duck hunter. I always heard about conservation. I, I never really, I mean, I did some some uh, wood duck houses, you know, um, with um, our local Delta chapter and stuff like that. But man, I wanted to get my, I wanted to roll up my sleeves, and I wanted to get in there, and I wanted to help out. I wanted to, I wanted to make a difference, right? And so, um, you know, they're a great way to engage us to um, do something bigger than ourselves. And so, um, and you get to meet, like you said, you just said, well, you get to meet great people. You get to meet, hey, um, even from this banding, you know, we've had people come from all over the country to do it. Um, we got a steady flow of people from Minnesota, uh, North Dakota. We've had people come from New York. I mean, just from all over. And, and so it's just cool to roll up your sleeves, get in there together. Hey, man, um, <laughs> it's going to sound crazy, but you get in a pair of chest waders and you're walking out in the Mississippi River, which is a pretty daunting river. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, we're, we're trapping these ducks that are just, so cool and we just have thousands of them coming through here and you know you get to hold a duck and you get to hold a live animal and you get to realize how precious it is and um you know you get to be part of something bigger you know we we take some different variables on them we band them we put them back and and we study them and and um uh, it's just cool to be a part of something that's that's bigger than yourself it really affords us this opportunity to kind of like be a part of the the life cycle of that dock and uh, have a you know a deeper appreciation for its ecology, those kind of things for sure. I can imagine, and plus you're building a network of conservationists too, right? So just all kinds of benefits coming out of those groups. So thanks, absolutely, yeah. Thanks for bringing that up. So I think we might be putting the proverbial cart ahead of the horse here a little bit. Let's uh, let's back up and like so. Pat, what's your your main um, occupation here? Is it decoy carving? You're you're out of Illinois. You're I, we've admired right. your work on Facebook here. You share a lot of pictures. So anyone who's Thanks. listening, um, you know, be sure to follow Pat on Facebook. He just shares a ton of content around decoy carving. But is is that your main focus here? And you're kind of like obviously waterfowling's deeply intertwined to that. Like, what what's your day to day looking like? Yeah, well, I'm uh, so I'm retired. I just um, I just retired a year ago, March. Um, I um, I came to Illinois, well, I'm an Illinois resident all my life, but I I came uh, down to Central Illinois to work at Illinois State University. I, I had uh, uh, actually a master's degree in exercise science, and I trained athletes for a living um, at Illinois State University for about eight years, and um, um, set that down got a little bit much for my family life. And so I set that down. I went in the corporate world. I worked in IT for about 28 years and I just retired from that a year ago, March. And so right now, you know, Hey, my day to day is really ducks and decoys. 
and then uh, my wife and I, we um, we serve at a local food bank. You know, we're even aside from all the outdoors and, and sportsman uh, stuff, we do a lot of work with uh, our local uh, food bank, and um, it's a, a large distributor that you know we we make sure that people have food. And so um, retired, you know, but a uh, lot of lot of duck carving. Um, you know, I carve and paint decoys every day. And then once hunting season starts, um, I've got a very aggressive hunting schedule. I pretty well <laughs> hunt from September. We start hunting uh, early teal down here in Illinois, and then we finish with snow geese in March. And so I'm pretty well booked with hunting uh, trips all the way from September through March. <laughs> Let me tell you, that sounds like it's the worst path. I <laughs> couldn't imagine. Well, hey. It's a it's a tough job, but somebody's got to do it. <laughs> uh, it's great to hear that you're you're still serving the community, but uh, you're also able to tap into some of your passions here. Um, if we look at the other end, like before before retirement and rewinding, I'm guessing a little further before that, uh, how did you get started in the carving world? So um, it's important to know I've got carving history in my family. So my great grandfather. Um, grew up on the Illinois River. His name was George Bardo. He was a famous uh, decoy carver, actually, on the Illinois River. Uh, he started carving decoys uh, back in the 1890s, the late 1890s, and he carved decoys for 60 years. You know, I mean, hey, this is a guy that um, lived off the river. You know, this is a guy that during the Great Depression, you know, when they had a plentiful harvest, you know, when you can go out and get a limit of 25, 30 ducks, this guy did it, and he went door to door to make sure people had food. You know, wow. Well, that's my, yeah, that's my great granddad, and he, um, he, he, uh, before actual carved, they, they actually used carved decoys. You know, down, I don't know about uh, in Canada, but I know down here in the states they used live decoys. You know, hmm. the, now those were outlawed, I think, back in the 30s. But he actually used live decoys uh, for a time, and then once they outlawed those. Um, he started making carving decoys, and he also spun duck calls. And uh, he, and he carved decoys for about 60 years. Now, I didn't learn from him because I was the year old when he passed. I was born 1958. He died in 1959. But he had a shop assistant by the name of Art Bennett from Lockport, Illinois. And in 1984, uh, at the encouragement of my wife, she said, you know, you need to call this guy, and you need to learn how to do that. And of course she was right. She's always right. So, <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I called Art and I said, "Hey, you know, I'm George Bardo's grandson. I'd like to learn how to carve." He still had all his patterns. He had all his tools, and uh, the rest is history. I've been carving decoys since since uh, 1984, and uh, I carve a lot of decoys. I'll just say there's. Um, I go. I I, uh, I I probably carve a hundred maybe 150 decoys a year. So wow. I, I just, I enjoy doing it. You know, it's, it's after 36 years, it's never been a burden, just really enjoyable. Sir, it certainly must be rewarding seeing something come out of the block of wood and, and turn into, uh, the, uh, uh, pretty much the artwork that, that you create. Um, that's gotta be pretty neat. I want to ask a few more questions about these live decoys, though. 
because I just sure. I just got some ducks at home. And now I'm thinking yeah. this fall maybe I should lasso them up and take them out with me. <laughs> <laughs> well, they had they had what they call English collars back in the day, and what they did is they actually had a um, um, it was like an ankle um, it was a I want to almost call it a bracelet, but um, um, they're actually collectible now. But they they they, uh, they would take this um, kind of ankle bracelet and put it around the duck's ankle. They'd tie a line to it and a weight to it, and they'd take them out in crates and they'd throw them out in the water. and And these English callers would sit there and they'd call. They just they're mallards and they just quack 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 while the ducks would come right into them. Mm-hmm. So you didn't need a duck call. You didn't. You know, they threw out a few uh, wooden decoys because they might only have one or two English scholars. But, uh, you know, that was back in the day when, hey, man, um, things things weren't as regulated as they are now. We didn't have the regulations and the treaties in place. And, you know, um, it was it was back when things were a lot looser. But, uh, um, yeah, he used live decoys. Um, that was That was commonplace down here. That's wild. I've I've never heard that before. It's sure. certainly something I learned today so far. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Definitely got outlawed. It's 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 <laughs> one of those things. It's way too effective. So it, it yeah. definitely got outlawed. But but it but it did. You know, it caused these these river hunters um, to make their own decoys and to make their own duck calls. That was you know a lot of people don't understand when they had live callers, they never needed a duck call. Right. But then once once the live callers were outlawed, you know, then you saw people starting to spin up all these duck calls to, you know, the the calls that we're actually using today. Yeah, and I guess I guess back then things aren't like they are like today's day and age where if uh, I need a new duck call, I can go down to Cabela's or order one off of uh, off of my computer. You know what I mean? <laughs> no, absolutely. I mean, the, you know, hey, the thing. You know, these men were resourceful. Here, here's here's what I admire about, you know, back in the day, you know. I mean, they couldn't get online and get on their phone and order decoys from Cabela's or wherever, you know. They had to build their own, and they did. Um, and they, they figured it out. And, uh, you know, uh, back then, uh, it was a, probably a little bit more of, hey, their, their next meal counted on it, you know. Whereas today we're a little bit more recreational hunters. Totally, uh, it's it's a odd bit of serendipity here, uh, Pat. But uh, we're currently sitting in Lockport, Manitoba, so it's funny that you would mention it. We Google Lockport every once in a while, and Lockport, Illinois, pops up. Uh, <laughs> Sweet, yeah, yeah. So that's cool. Yeah, small world in some ways. Um, yeah, I've got a. Yeah. Uh, oh, go ahead, Pat. Yeah, I was just going to say my teacher that taught me how to carve decoys is from Lockport, Illinois. Yeah. Yeah, unreal. Um, I've got to ask, though, uh, do you still have the first decoy you carved? I do. Um, I actually, my my great-granddad carved both full-size decoys and miniatures. Um, I've got the first miniatures I ever made, and that's kind of how I started. And then I got into full-size decoys. And um, I, I made a pair. I, I got the first mallards I carved. I carved a pair of camas packs and gave them to my sister, and she still has them. Uh, but uh, I've got probably the first ten that I've carved. You know, just 
as part of my history. I don't use them much anymore. I've got a second pair of canvas backs I have. I still take them out and, and gun them, but uh, most of them just sit on the shelf and collect dust. That's pretty amazing. Like, were you? Uh, you must have been pretty proud of how those uh, those birds turned out. Clearly, if you uh, if you kept with it. Well, yeah, you know, I I got to tell you, you know what 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 really drives me with carving is the ducks themselves. I just I I um, you know I don't know what if you guys are deer hunters or upland game hunters or whatever you know, but the animals themselves are really what drive me. And I um, a lot of people ask me, well, what's your favorite bird to carve? And I just got to say, all of them. I I love you know, right now, like uh, before you, I talked to you guys, I was setting eyes on pintails. I, I put um, glass eyes in about five pintails I'm doing here, and those are going to go in my gunny rig this year. Um, I've got some scoters here. I'm go- I'm going to be painting. I've got some shovelers. I've got some magansers, you know. I've got a bluebill or two, you know. But the point is, is the animals themselves drive me. I mean... They fuel my energy to carve these things, and um, I just, it, it, it's, uh, after 36 years, you'd think I'd be burned out. Man, I've got an I've got an energy level to do this that is, is crazy. I, I, I can't explain it. <laughs> That's awesome. I, uh, I, I, I can see the diversity in, in the ducks, too, being been a a nice change between decoy to decoy but i gotta challenge you on that uh that shoveler decoy there pat because you know i feel like i could put a shopping bag out in the decoy spread and those shovelers would lock right in and come in like they were (laughs) (laughs) Uh, that hurt that hurt you're you're right though you're right you know uh it wasn't wasn't, very yeah it wasn't necessarily a shot towards you just shovelers in general (laughs) i know i just love them though you know even though a lot of people hey there's people that say they're not good table fare i'd argue that Uh, i put a recipe out in uh, delta magazine and i fed uh the editor shoveler and he's like man that's amazing it's like yeah you just ate a spoony dude you know but the point is is they're just all amazing birds um i just yeah i, I love i love them all to death one th- one thing i guess you probably really get to see up close and personal is, is just the detail and and the really the fine the fine beauties of these 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 creatures um you know a lot of yeah. people don't really i guess slow down and really pay attention to the details and and look at these things but uh i always try and you know make sure i stop look and and kind of take a some imagery in through my mind kind of and and just to gain a greater appreciation appreciation for the 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 beauty that these uh whether it's deer hunting or elk hunting or waterfowl hunting or upland game hunting, whatever it may be, you know, there's always something unique and, and uh, special about all these creatures. Absolutely. And if you have to make one, that's that, you know, honestly, that's the acid test for me is when you have to replicate it, it becomes real. So give you an example, you know, I'll, I'll uh, and I'm not super detailed because I, I, uh, I, I pride myself in making, true gunning decoys i mean the the decoys i make hunt 
and um, I try not to get over detailed because you know that can get too labor intense and it starts to drift away from being a true gunning decoy. But I like to get enough of of the animal on there that makes it representative of the species, right? But um, you know, hey man, when you've got a paint a gadwall, for example, you're looking at the back of that drake and you're like, yeah, how do I do those feathers? And and um, so um, it's a challenge, um, but it it making decoys. The fact that I've had to replicate these all these different species of ducks has has um, grown my appreciation for the ducks themselves. I mean, unbelievable. Just I I just so appreciate them because when you have to replicate them, yeah, um, it's it's tough and and uh, it challenges you. But um, anyways, I just really um, appreciate the animal more because you know I have to replicate them. So yeah, it's just it, it's something that most decoy carvers go through. Yeah, Pat. And the other thing there too, uh, um, you know, I was just thinking about you talking about detail. And I remember like growing up as a kid and my old man would shoot like a green head with, you know, triple curls and just like the beauty of them. And I'm just like sitting there listening to you and thinking like, you know, a lot of people probably out there think a duck is a duck to a duck. But when it comes mm-hmm. to detail, I mean, there's, there's lots that goes in it. And, and coming back to like the actual carving part, when it comes to the material and they clearly, I'm assuming it's majority or or 100% wood, but what kind of materials are you usually dealing with? So um, softwoods mostly, you know, um, pines and cedars, you know, uh, make make good carving wood. Uh, I use mostly um, white cedar for the bodies. Um, I get I get my white cedar out of Michigan. It, it all comes from the Upper Peninsula of Michigan. They've got this good, clear white cedar. It floats great. It carves wonderfully. I mean, if you watch, look at my Facebook page, I use spoke shaves on these bodies, man, and and it rolls these big, beautiful curls up, and it, it's such a pleasure to sit there and use that spoke shave and run across that white cedar. I'm telling you, it smells like Christmas in my shop. Mm-hmm. I'm not, it's beautiful. But, um, yeah, I mostly uh, uh, cedars and pines. I use a little bit of basswood, which is a linden tree. Um, so you got to kind of know your woods a little bit. Um, I also uh, uh, dabble in a little um, high-density cork. You know, cork is uh, something that, the old timers used to use because it was available back during the war. They'd get a lot of, they had a lot of leftover cork and balsa wood and, um, uh, cork is all, uh, uh, it all comes out of Portugal and it's all tree bark and they grind it up and they make this and the cork really floats wonderfully. So I shape a lot of gunning decoys out of uh, white cedar and I also do quite a few in cork. So just some different materials. So, you t- you were talking earlier too about how uh, you, most of the decoys you generally create or we'll say a working decoy, mm-hmm. and maybe not as detailed in some of the the, the finer uh, the the finer details that could be dressed up as a as a showpiece. But what are sure. uh, what are some of the the like major things that you focus on when you're when to 
really make a difference in a spread for for your decoys? Okay, that's a great question. And uh, I'll even kind of pull um, your Manitoba roots into this a little bit. Um, I'm going to kind of sidebar and I'll come back to that. So in 2014, I got to go up and hunt the Delta Marsh for the first time. And one of the things that I always revered about um, the Delta Marsh and Manitoba decoys is the Delta Marsh canvasback is the most, in my opinion, one of the most classic uh, gunning decoys ever made. I mean, it's just, but but the point of it is, is the Delta Marsh canvasback is so simple. I mean, if you ever had one in your hand, you'd look at it, you'd go, man, looks like a kid made this. But, you know, those guys had it figured out. You know, the the Ducharmes that, that, and the, the, uh, the, the, guys that carved those Delta Marsh canvasbacks, they knew what a canvasback looked like down the water. And the, and the acid test, and here's where it kind of becomes real, is the acid test is what does it look like at 20 yards? You know, it doesn't really matter what it looks like in your hand. What it, what it matters is, is how do those decoys, um, what do those decoys look at, like at 20 yards? And what is the collective group, the rig, of decoys look like and that's that's really my benchmark for my gunning decoys you know is what do they look like at 20 yards are they representative representative of the species uh, i'll uh, i'll go back to your spoonie i mean i'll just tell you man my spoonies look like spoonies you know they just at 20 yards they look like spoonies on the water right and um so do they look like what they're supposed to be at 20 yards and then collectively what's the group doing you know like for example a lot of the and, and um i'm going to ding the plastic decoys here for a minute a lot of the i'll say the older plastic decoys you know, their heads were just straight away and you look out there and all their heads were just locked in well if you ever look at a, a rig of ducks they're all doing different things man their heads are stretched out their heads are you know they're just they're, they're busy they're doing things and so one of the things I do is I turn the heads like I got different postures and different poses and I've got the heads doing different things. I got heads turned backwards. I've got heads like Bill skimming the water, you know, and so I'm, I'm real select and real cognizant about what's that group of ducks look like on the water? What's that group of decoys? Do they look like they're doing something? Do they look like they have movement, you know, because ducks move? You know, so I, I just collectively I look at the the rig as well. Would you would you say uh, like a flock of ducks that would all have their heads up and looking forward? Maybe it looked like a flock of ducks that would be on high alert or somewhat mm -hmm. agitated, maybe. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. You know, nervous. You know, and and uh, ducks are real sensitive to that. You know, um, I kind of scold some of my peers sometimes. You know. I, you know, they think they got to make these big oversized ducks. Like, like they make them two and three times the size of a regular duck. And they're like, I'm like, what are you doing? It's like ducks find themselves all the time. They don't need, you don't need these big over. Well, we can't see them. Well, that's the problem. You can't see them, but the ducks can see them. They come to themselves all the time. So even, even the size of the duck, you know, make it, make the standard size of the duck, you know, your norm because, they find themselves all the time, you know, and you can probably have more decoys if you have smaller decoys, 
than than these big oversized, you know, um, uh, decoys that are, are just way too big. I think I think the problem is we can't see the duck see fine. <laughs> it's, <laughs> it's a, just my opinion. It is a totally different view from there. I can I yeah. can vouch for that. And uh, I I imagine like when we're thinking about decoys too, you're thinking about closing the the just the the final distance there so i can't imagine a oversized decoy would be too attractive to a to a duck to come into well it it's just uh i think logistically um you you get in the point where if you got all these big oversized decoys hey your boat's only so big right you can only carry so many decoys in your boat and um so anyways i'm i'm pretty practical you know, I like I like things standard size. If a duck is, if a, if a true mallard is is 16 inches from bill to tail, make your decoys 16 inches. Why not? I mean, that's mm-hmm. that's kind of the size of a mallard. I'm just I'm just kind of practical that way. So that's one of the things that struck me the the practicality of it all when I was researching. Uh, so Duncan Ducharme's our great uncle, and um, it, that's that's so cool. By the way, yeah, that is awesome. And I, I hate to say we don't know everything about him, but like we're trying to learn more and more as we as we go along here. And it struck me in our research that like just how because they were commercial carvers in some ways, right? They weren't doing this for um, necessarily for the artistic value of it. They were doing it to make ends meet. They were doing it to harvest animals. They were doing it to sell the decoys. Um, and there there was a pragmatism built in to those decoys that they made, as you've kind of alluded to here, it wasn't, it wasn't to make an ornate, uh, masterpiece, but really was to make a decoy that was effective, that they could reproduce, uh, reliably. Uh, is is that something? Yeah. Could you speak to that a little, Pat? Is that something that you see in their work? Is that like reflected in the practice and the, of the, the making of those decoys? Yeah, you nailed it. You know, I mean, honestly, Here's the thing, and I, I believe this because I've been I've been in the uh, yeah I'm not a big end collector, but I've been in the collector realm for about 35 years, and I, I think we've turned them into these 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 high end art objects. You know, I mean, honestly, I know my great granddad and and even probably people like Duncan Ducharme, Dan Ducharme, they'd probably roll over in the grave and laugh. You know, it's like <laughs> you paid how much for, you paid how much for my decoy? You're nuts, man. You know Duncan Ducharme. I mean, I've I've bought Duncan's some of Duncan's uh, unpainted stuff. Um, I talked to a gentleman that bought it right from Duncan. He he used to sell those for seven dollars a piece. You know, yeah. but you're right. They used to these were tools to them. These were these weren't art objects. These were they sat in a in a in a boathouse or they sat in the boat with a, a line and a weight wrapped around all year. They cleaned them up. They they paint repainted them as needed. Um, you know, I, I think we've kind of turned them into these art objects. But you know, these these guys were utilitarian. They they uh, you know these were these were the tools they needed to put meat on the table. And um, and I appreciate that about them because I think they were you know people like Duncan Ducharme and and um, you know Dan Ducharme, little Joe Ducharme. You know, uh, Peter Ward, Harry Chartrand, those were all, those guys were like masters at making a duck at 20 yards. I mean, these, I'm looking at some Ducharmes 
uh, here in my shop. And I'm telling you, these things, you know, at 20 yards, his canvasback hens look so much like a canvasback hen. It's crazy. It's just awesome. And so and then that's what they knew. They didn't overdo it, right? They didn't. They didn't have. They didn't do it to impress people. They didn't do it to, to sell them for big money. They did them to fool a duck, and um, and and they did a great job of it. I, I just so revere what they did because the other thing is they didn't have a lot. You know, I mean, hey man, um, I don't know if you ever. There's a little. Uh, have you ever seen um, there? There's a there's a film clip out on YouTube called Once Upon a Marsh. Have you seen it? I I haven't seen it. No. I'm going to send you a link to it, and here's why. It's about Canada, and and it's about. It, I think it was uh, it was like back in the 50s, maybe early 60s. But it's got so it's got some footage of Duncan Ducharme in this um, in this clip where he's he's making decoys and. He, you know, he he did all, he had all hand tools. He did everything by hand. You know, they they carved these heads with a jackknife. I mean, they didn't have power sanders or Fordhams or anything like that. I mean, with, with what they had, these guys were amazing. And they did, you know, a lot of people ask about um, if I've learned anything about the Delta Marsh decoys, they were kind of a community thing. I mean, people got together and they made them together, like they. Like uh, uh, Duncan, he didn't paint a lot. He painted a lot of his early decoys, but then, you know, um, hey, a lot of people painted his decoys. Uh, Peter Ward painted a lot of Ducharme decoys. Harry Chartrand painted a lot of Ducharme decoys. And um, because, hey, they were making gunning decoys, right? I mean, they were getting together, and they were making sure that these clubs for themselves had plenty of gunning decoys for each boat that went out and hunted the marsh the next day. And so um, they all kind of chipped in and got it done. And so sometimes it's kind of tough to determine who did what, you know, but uh, that never bothered those guys. It bothers us as collectors. (laughs) You know, we're sitting there trying to figure it out, but uh, it never bothered them. I, I I did notice that in the research too that I was doing, but one thing like I, maybe you could speak to it a little, Pat, here is, um, how does this like incredibly utilitarian device, this this rough crudely card decoy, and I'm being a little facetious there, but um, how does how does that that decoy come to be valued like so much? Like you like, mm. how much have you seen a Ducharme go for, and why is it valued at that rate? Yeah, well, the last and and I didn't um. I talked to a gentleman the other day that's been my source for Ducharme decoys, and he's real heavily into the collecting arm of it. And he said that um, uh, some of the Ducharme canvas packs were going for about $2,500, okay? So what what drives that? Well, um, you know, in the collector's world, um, a lot of things drive that. Number one is great and classic form, okay? And and the Ducharme, um, mostly the canvas packs. Like some of his other stuff, the mallards are not aren't as, as collectible. I've I've seen a lot of his mallards. Um, like I've got a blue bill of his. They just don't have the form that the canvas packs have. 
and so really everybody wants the canvas back. So so you got this classic form. That's one thing. The second thing is condition. You know, is it original? You know, has or has it been repainted? Um, a lot of these decoys aren't original because back in the day, you know, um, after a couple three years of use, they'd put a fresh coat of paint on these things, and that was commonplace. You know, they they weren't doing anything wrong. You know, but uh, so original paint means something to these collectors. Uh, rarity, you know, are, are they rare? Is it a rare species? Like, for example, uh, a Duncan Ducharme teal is very collectible because you just don't find them. They're very, I've seen maybe five or six Duncan Ducharme teal over the years. His canvas backs are his most, you know, common species because that's what they hunted. You know, I've, I've, uh, seen a few redheads that he's done i've got a redhead hen that he did uh, but mostly he did canvas backs a goose is rare you know uh, but uh canvas backs were his staple so so rarity of species is another thing um so you know right now ducharms are really kind of enjoying the whole delta marsh is enjoying some visibility of some resurgence in interest and um, the collectors uh, are, are really kind of want their decoys. That kind of leads into my next question. And I'm just wondering, because we, we sat down with uh, earlier uh, Scott Petrie and Bob Sopuck of uh, Delta Waterfowl to talk kind of about um, their mission and stuff. But like, and so we got kind of the waterfowl side of it, but like, what's the, there seems to be kind of this magic around Delta for not just waterfowling, but carving in the whole like waterfowl game. Sure. Do, do you have sure. any hint at the, 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 what was going on there at the time and why that continues to be almost this mecca of waterfowl um, for outdoors enthusiasts? Sure. Well, it's got the, you know, up there at Delta, I don't know if you, if you've been up there to the marsh, but you know, number one, it's got great content. I mean, it's got, it's this, it's this beautiful, pristine habitat for canvasbacks and redheads. You know, the ducks return there in the spring. They, 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 you know, they lay their eggs. They have their young. So you've got this beautiful habitat. You know, for, so for an artist, it's an amazing place. And um, and Delta has a great history. Okay, so so you got to understand a little bit about Delta's history. Do we have a minute for that? I I would say yes. I have lots of time for the history of Delta. (laughs) Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So 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 the the only reason I mentioned the history is because with that history comes all the artists. There have been a a a lot of top name artists that have been through Delta. You know, um, you know the Delta Marsh uh, when they started the research station there back in the '30s. Um, you know, a lot of people don't understand, but the Delta Marsh has had a significant impact on waterfowling in North America throughout history. It's amazing. And um, uh, bigger than DU, bigger th- and earlier than DU, it actually started earlier than DU, but um, the impact has been amazing on waterfowl. With that has come things like the duck stamp, you know. Uh, with the duck stamp comes all these artists. Um, you know, the early um, Al Hochbaum, the first director at Delta, he was an artist. He did all the artwork 
in all the um, books that have been written about Delta. Um, Peter Ward was an artist. All the Ward brothers, uh, uh, Peter and Tori Ward, Russell Ward, who's still alive and up there at Portage, uh, they were all decoy carvers. They were all artists. Um, you know, you had significant artists go through Delta. Um, on the American side, you had uh, people like David Moss and the Hoffman brothers and Jim Radisek, you know, all these top waterfall artists. On the, on the Canadian side, I mean, people like Peter Lyons and Peter Ward, you know, that were phenomenal waterfall artists, all came from Delta. And matter of fact, I was just talking with Jim Radisek out of Minnesota the other day, and they used to have an artist-in-residence uh, program uh, for artists at Delta. Okay, so when you take that and all the decoys, it's it's this rich heritage of art that came out of Delta, you know, and that's all because of not only the people that were there, but, but the subject matter. I mean, you have this amazing habitat for ducks up there that is just, for any artist that does like wildlife art, it would be just amazing to be there. I mean, they they could sit up there with their sketchbook and sketch for weeks because it's just it's just that amazing. It all, it almost seems like Delta seeing that all this artistry was a uh, was a uh, something special too, and providing that that position to be open for the artists and just seeing it as a way to to carry forward the passions and the and the the rich history and and everything involved with uh, the actual Delta Marsh and waterfowl in general. Absolutely. And, you know, and, and, and Delta is, is, you know, Delta waterfowl, but Delta, the, the, the habitat up there, it's one of, I think it's one of the best kept secrets in North America. And, and um, it's, it's a place where so many people got their start. Like you talk about some of the top biologists, in both Canada and and in the states, they got their start at Delta. I mean, that's when when you were a young biologist, you wanted to go to Delta, and you wanted to get that on your resume. And so you've got all these biologists that got their start at Delta. I mean, you know, Scott grew up in Portage. You know, um, uh, a lot of these artists, if they didn't get their start at Delta, which a lot of them did. Um, Delta kind of accelerated them into, you know, the, the big leagues, right? And so um, Delta is really um, has, has bred and precipitated and really just kind of augmented a lot of people's careers, you know, um, just because of, of what goes, you know, with that. And, you know, it was all, it was all the brainchild of, of uh, Mr. Bell out of minnesota he kind of started the whole thing and and kind of put it on the map um but uh, i don't know if scott told you but delta waterfowl is coming out with a book about delta it's due to be out in about a year um the history i think is going to really be impressive for people and they're actually going to have a chapter uh paul waits gonna is the author and, and paul's actually going to have a chapter on um the uh, the decoys and the artwork of Delta. So he'll, he'll have an, actually a dedicated chapter because it's that significant. 
Yeah, Scott gave us a great history, and we're definitely looking forward to that, that the outline and that, that the release of that book. And uh, I think it'll be on our list for a must read for sure. So, uh, and we'll also be obviously promoting that to sure. to to our sure. our followers as well. And yeah, so thanks so much for speaking to uh, just kind of like what Delta brings to the waterfowling community. How many times have you been up to Delta, might I ask, Pat? Yeah, I've been to the marsh twice. I went in 2014, and then I went back in 2018. And, uh, yeah, it's it's an amazing resource. I just, you know, it's like going to heaven for me. <laughs> for a waterfowler, it's, it doesn't get any better than that. Oh, that's so cool. That's so cool to hear you, man. Like, uh, sometimes in Manitoba or Canada, we have this lesser than, uh, feeling i would say and uh it's, it's cool to hear sometimes folks just kind of affirm the some of the resources and the opportunities we have up here but changing gears a bit here I, i'm wondering like some people some folks might look at you like you're a bit crazy pat and say like you know you can get uh you know the flambo special at uh at uh, cabela's for 60 bucks like what are you what are you really doing here um yeah. what's kind of driving the carving here you mentioned your your appreciation for the species, but there's got to be more to it than the, um, this the appreciations for the species. I'm guessing. Well, there there is, you know. I mean, um, hey, it, it's like anything else. I mean, um, some people like old music, some people like old cars, some people like uh, old uh, bamboo fly rods, some people like to shoot an A5. You know. Um, I think to enrich your waterfowling experience, I mean, hey, I would like to think that I just don't go out and hunt. For me, it, it, I'll use my 2014 Delta trip uh, um, as an example. You know, before I went up to Delta, and this is what kind of got me baptized into understanding all about Delta. And and my thought, my thought process was, if I'm going to go up there, I want to understand uh, a little bit more about the history I want to understand a little bit more about the culture. I want to understand a little bit more about the people. And so I set out, and, and it took me about six months to kind of understand. I wanted to know where I was going, you know. And um, and it was so awesome because I, I was able to find people that had documented history about it. I, I found a, a gentleman actually right here in Illinois that had a bunch of old history uh, around the delta marsh and um and and i i kind of gobbled all that up and and uh, and i say all that to say it's not just about hunting with me i want to i want to have a rich experience um i want to i want to see ducks come into my own blocks that i made you know i want to uh be with friends and um Remember the times we had, um, you know, it, it's just more than a hunt, you know. And so I think most people, I mean, most people are looking for that. It's just, you know, when you're younger, maybe it's the big buck or maybe it's, you know, you're, you're, get your limit, whatever. Hey, that's fine. But as you get older, you know, you start to look for the quality of the experience versus the quantity experience. And for me, um, Hey, I trained my own lab and I hunted with her till she passed. And then, and, and, you know, for the last 35 years, I've been gunning my own decoys. And, and now 
um, I've got students. I'm 62 years old, and so I've trained a lot of students. And so now my students take me hunting. I hunt over their decoys. Now that's cool. <laughs> wow. Man. I mean, that's sweet. They just put me in a boat and load. <laughs> I leave my gun on the street. I don't even have to pitch a decoy. Sweet. <laughs> oh, man. I could just um, feel the truth oozing out of your words there, Pat, though, because I, I feel like I'm also starting to maybe, – maybe I'm not in the same place you are yet, but I'm um, starting to see, you know, previously very focused on the harvest, we'll say, but um, – you know, just this year tying some flies that I caught some fish off of, some trout off of up in a northern Manitoba lake, like extremely nice. rewarding. I can only imagine what it would be like to um, harvest, uh, you know, a duck over a decoy that I carved. And uh, sure. we've done the lab experience on chasing myself, and I know Sheldon has on his end too. Um, again, just an ex extremely rewarding experience. It seems like as we age here, you, you stop chasing the animal and you start chasing like the story or like the, the sentiment in some ways of what's going on outside. It's, it's funny, uh, how you spoke of that too, Pat. And I certainly notice a huge difference in the way I think about things, the older I get. And it not only enriches, uh, my current experiences and, and how I kind of plan out future experiences and and an audience, but when I look back on on other hunts and other events that happened, it actually creates a greater appreciation for things that happened in the past where maybe I wouldn't have been um, as as uh, appreciative of or or recognized some of some of the unique events that that went down. You know. Well, absolutely, and you know, hey. I can remember, you know, like our kids are grown now, uh, but I can remember when I took, uh, I, I remember the first duck our son shot, you know, and uh, I can remember that first hunt we did together. And, and, uh, and now I love, I, I love, I take a lot of people hunting. I, I love taking people out. Um, last year during our early teal season, um, I shoot a lot of sporting clays with friends and a friend of mine, um, He's got a daughter that's in her 20s. She shoots with us. She's probably shot a thousand plays with us in the summer. And uh, we got to go out and do a teal hunt. And I'm telling you, it just all came together. You know, these blue wings were in my decoys. And it was just awesome. I mean, they were just, it was a beautiful day. And to see this kid shoot with her dad, you know, it doesn't get any better now. I didn't have, you know, I shot, yeah, but I didn't have to pull the trigger. And, um, and now I'm kind of the old guy, and, uh, you know, I got a lot of these young guys I take out. They got young dogs. They're, they're training dogs. I'm helping a buddy train a, a lab in the morning, you know. And, and just to see these young ones take these pups out, and, I mean, that's just all part of the experience, right? You know, it's just all um, passing it on, I guess, and sharing your heritage and um, uh, spending time together in the marsh and, um, you know, uh, all that adds up to great experience. And, um, you know, when you look back on it one day, you'll go, yep, I did it right, you know, and, and I did it well. And so um, it, it's just more than a hunt, um, honestly. And, uh, um, hey, you guys are still young, but as you get older, I don't know if you, 
you know, if you have kids and you start to take your kids fishing and hunting, that'll change you. That's a game changer. <laughs> that, that's the other thing, the great appreciation I have for uh, um, the patience our fathers had with us because I've, uh, my kids are just getting to the age now where uh, I'm going to start introducing them to some, some of the outdoor world and, and uh, sure. patience is certainly a virtue when you're starting oh, yeah. that out. I, it, well, it's kind of like painting that decoy, you, you know, when you got to show somebody how to do it. And, you know, I can remember heck, when I was duck hunting with my son, I didn't even kind of watch my own behavior, right? You know, I couldn't, you know, I was like, oh, man, I got my son with me. Not that it should change a lot, but, uh, you know, hey, when you got to show them how to do things right and, you know, we talked about things like, hey, don't put that gun up unless you Dad, I want to shoot that coot. You going to eat that coot? <laughs> you know? And, and that was a hard and fast rule around our house, you know? So, uh, yeah, we had to we had to choke down some McGanzer stew one time. <laughs> well, I got to say through, throughout your conversation here, Pat, you, you know, you really seem like you're uh, creating a huge difference in, in like, so many other – outdoors folks lives and passing on this this wealth and knowledge that that you've created for your and 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 uh educated yourself with throughout uh all the years that that you've been doing it and yeah really it's it's not only helping out the, those folks but it's helping out the hunting community as a whole as as you know i mean it's always a struggle for to to maintain hunters numbers and, and everything thing like that. And, and I think the value that you can bring and that, that you, uh, give to these other folks is just a huge step in the right direction for, to carry this on and to, to make sure it's not lost. Sure. Sure. And I appreciate that, you know, cause, um, Hey, I don't know. This is just a little personal philosophy, but you know, my dad never hunted, which was pretty amazing. And yet, um, I've told people, you know, they're like, yeah, my dad doesn't, it's okay. My dad did not, you know, it, it's, so how do you do it? How do you make a difference? One person at a time, you know, we can't, we can't improve the hunter numbers. We can't, but you know, you can take somebody hunting, you can take somebody shooting, you can invite somebody, over to your shop and, and, um, and, and teach them how to make a decoy. You know, it's, it's like one person at a time. And, and I think if everybody just took an approach where, you know, you come up alongside of somebody and, and engage them, you know, it, it's, a it makes for a good community. We've got a really nice group of, uh, people that gun together and, and, we're all about sharing, you know, a lot of places. I know how some places it's like, well, this is my spot. I can't, you know, it's like, we're not like that. You know, like we, we do the big water layout hunting, you know, I don't know if you any and you guys have been in one of the layout boats yet or not yet. Not yet, but we've, uh, we've hunted the big water without the layouts, put it that way. <laughs> yeah. The layouts are amazing. They, they're a life changer, but we do a lot of that. And, and so we take people, it's like, you ever been, you know, even experienced waterfowlers will say, you ever been in a layout boat? They're like, no, I've always wanted to try that. All right, come on. And so the next thing you know, we got them 
on the Mississippi River laying in the middle of the of the river uh, on his back in a little boat. He said, you know, but and, and nothing better. Like for us, you know, you'll see 15 camasbacks just come right down on top of and uh, it's just crazy cool. But, you know, one person at a time, you know, how do you how do you help this? You know, um, hey, just just one person at a time. Right? That's that's always been my approach. And uh, uh, I think it makes a difference. It's interesting to like uh, think about how we're we're almost living in paradoxical times in some ways. When I think about how we're at times facing declining hunting numbers, but on the other hand, here there seems to be just this increase in uh, uh, thirst for experiencing the outdoors, and uh, people want to get out there. People want to know how to connect, um, but they're just not sure how. And yes. Yeah. And so if we like, I'm going to shift over here to, uh, you know, maybe beginner carvers, because I'm hoping a few folks might be inspired to venture into that here. Just listen to us chat about it. I know I am. Um, Pat, are you are you open to sharing like maybe, you know, what what's some good starting points for people if they're looking at carving and maybe, you know, like some common barriers or hang ups to be on the lookout for? Yeah. Well, great, great question. And, and, and I'll, I'll be honest with you, I, I don't. I don't think there's ever been a better time than now to actually go after something like that. And here's why with all this online con- connectivity, I mean, I know ham with, you know, Hey, we get tired of the political rant, all that. I get it. But here's the thing. When it comes to things like hunting and carving, we've never had a greater opportunity to be able to network. Like I'll give you an example with decoy carving. Um, I've run into a lot of people that geographically they just don't have the people around them to get the help, you know, but the internet changed all that, you know, now, Hey, even tonight you've read, you've referenced, you've been on my page. Um, I fought it for years. I didn't want to do social media. I mean, I actually worked in it and I just didn't want to do it. I, I just, I'm I'm probably more of a private type than than social, but but uh, I had a few friends that are also carvers and hunters that encouraged me and said, you know, um, you should do this because one, you share a lot of history, and two, you're open about sharing your carving. And so uh, with that, so I've been doing the Facebook thing for probably about four years now, and I'll just say humbly that my following is pretty significant. I mean, I got people, I get, I get carving questions every day, every day. And, um, and, and I'm good with that because these are people that probably don't have a hometown carver, you know, they don't know where to go. It's like, where do I go for wood or where do I do for this? You know? And so the point is, is that with all this on these online communities, people are actually pretty open to sharing about, you know, how to get going, where to get going, where to get your materials and so on. And, um, Hey, when I was coming up back in the eighties, if I needed to get eyes like decoy eyes, Oh my, I had to call somebody or call this, you know, now you put a post out and, and in, in probably less than two minutes, you're going to know where to get decoy eyes, you know? So in that sense, I think it's a great time to get going on something like this. Um, 
you know, now to get like hands-on help, you know, you're probably going to have to get online and work with somebody, you know, or at least find some carvers in your region. Um, you know, I've had people try, I don't do formal classes or anything, and I don't know many people that do, to be honest with you, but uh, most carvers are very open to have people come in the shop, which for me, the people that I've trained, I've had people come to the shop and uh, just spend a day, spend a couple days, you know, um, and and get going. Uh, so I think this is a great time to get going on something like this because the resources, you got a lot of good resources right at your fingertips. I mean, you can get right on your phone and learn an awful lot about decoys where, you know, 10 years ago you couldn't hardly do that. So obviously getting tapped into community is very important. And uh, I, I think the Wildlife Federation up here actually put on a decoy carving class at, uh, nice. At, at, nice. at one point in time. So that was cool to see. Unfortunately, I didn't make it out. But I'm, I'm wondering, like, so get tapped in the community. And then, like, next steps, like, if I was looking for tools and obviously sourcing some wood would be important. Like, uh, like what, kind, what kind of tangible things am I looking at here? Well, you, you you know, where you guys are at, you got all that up there for the most part. I mean, you got good wood. You know, you've got cedars up there. you got pines up there. Um, so, so you know, you, you guys, were, where you're at, you still got lumber mills. You know where you can go get good lumber. Um, you know, the tools, I mean, if you're doing it all by hand, um, you know, they're um, draw knives and spoke shaves. Um, you know, you can go, heck, um, uh, you can get online, and, and uh, there's a lot of knife, knife suppliers, you know, to get a good carving knife to carve a head. Um, you know, a lot of the body tools, a lot of the rasps, and, you know, you, you'd be amazed about how many of those you can find just around town there, at, you know, um, in sheds and garages, you know. Um, but the, the um, uh, where you guys, here, here's here's kind of my challenge to you is you guys said you're Ducharme family, right? You need somebody up there that needs to get his patterns and and bring that Ducharme decoy back to life. I mean, hey, I mean, forgive me, but this is pretty pathetic. Here I am, a guy down here in Illinois, carving your Ducharme decoys. You need somebody <laughs> up there in Manitoba to, to bring that style back and do it. It's just so cool. It's such a piece of your history. Um, I'd buy one. I'd buy. I'd buy. Hey, I'll, I'll be your first customer. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's. It, I, I almost feel guilty of to to say that. You know, we we haven't really dug as deep as we would have liked to into uh, into the the charm thing and and uh, this decoy carving in general. And it's certainly something I could see myself getting into. And and uh, but one of our good friends actually carves his own decoys and and uh, maybe that's something we can toss his way and and uh, i'm sure he'd be willing to show us his tricks of the trade and guide us along yeah yeah well you know start small here here's what i i always told people you know a lot of my gun buddies a lot of my duck hunt buddies um you know came to me and they said hey i'd like to make some decoys too and so what we did is we'd start with we'd pick a species so maybe you start with canvas backs and maybe your goal is, Hey, I'm going to make six Delta Mar style 
Duncan Ducharme looking canvas backs. That's my goal. I'm going to make six the first year. And then after that, I'm going to make six more. You know what I mean? It's funny. I, I, um, I used to do that with my gunning decoys. I'd make six puddlers and six canvas, or, uh, six puddlers and six divers a year. And, you know, after 10 years, you got a pretty good rig. Um, but, um, start small, you know, and, and kind of hone in on, you know, my encouragement to you would be is hone in on your tradition. You guys have a legacy and, and, um, I always look, uh, I know enough about decoys. I study different regional decoys, like the Illinois River has its own style. Michigan has its own style of decoys. And I love it when regions have contemporary carvers that, that make that style of decoy for that region. And, and, and I think Manitoba needs to kind of resurrect that. I do. I, it would be so cool to see some of the Ducharme family to make some Ducharme decoys. And, uh, Hey, I got, I've got, I can pattern. If you guys need patterns, let me know. I, uh, um, I've got patterns, uh, right that I've made right from his decoys. They're not too tough to make. And, uh, so, you know, give yourself a goal, start small. Don't, don't overcomplicate it. Make them simple. You know, his were not complicated. You know, they were simple and make a simple one and make a traditional one. And you know what? Take them out and hunt them. And I'm telling you, man, the first time those canvas backs lock into those decoys, I'll tell you, it's, uh, that's where it all comes together. Oh, if that isn't a call to action, if I've ever heard one, I don't know what it is. I think that's the first time we've been yeah. called out like that on our own podcast. <laughs> well, hey, come on now. <laughs> No, we we appreciate it, and it's uh it's uh duly noted, and uh, uh it certainly maybe you were speaking a little to our subconscious there, Pat, and uh, some of the guilt we might be feeling over this uh, rich cultural history that we do enjoy in Manitoba, and maybe not taking full advantage of that. Well, it's it's definitely not. I, I mean, hey, don't get me wrong. Don't do it out of guilt, but you know, um, uh, um. And I'll use myself for an example. You know, like I said, my great-granddad, well, he was on my mom's side. So um, he died when I was a year old, and then it stopped. And in 1984, you know, all those years later, my wife was the one that said, you know, that's a great family history, man. You sh- you can do it. You should go back and, 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 and kind of dig that up and get it going again. And... At first, I didn't, I wasn't so hot on it, but she was right. And I guess I'm kind of saying the same thing to you guys. You guys got this great legacy that, you know, would be so, uh, you know, cool to just resurrect that and to see Ducharme decoys again. And, um, you know, I mean, hey, there's a, and from a collector standpoint, I mean, if you're looking to, you know, ever get in the collecting realm, Hey, let me tell you, there's a good uh, appetite right now for that style of decoy in the collector's market. And so what I'll tell you is, is I mean, decoys is, it's paid for a lot of shotgun shells for me, you know. So, um, hey, it's a, it, it can be a, a second source of income and, and one that's awful fun to do. So 
anyways we might something have to, to think about we might have to cut that part of the out of the podcast so we and all our listeners don't cue in on that and <laughs> have a sudden influx and Ducharme decoys a, coming out of Manitoba and surrounded areas. Right. <laughs> yeah. yeah, the orders are going to be coming in and you haven't even covered your first decoy yet. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so, like, we've kind of hinted at it here, Pat, but I'm wondering, um, uh, what do you see for the future of decoy carving here, both your both with for yourself and like the the broader community? Well, for myself, I'm going to keep going till till I'm tired. You know, I I this is 36 years for me uh, of doing it. I enjoy it. I still got a lot of energy for it, and I I sure like sharing it. I mean, even the like this podcast. You know, honestly, I appreciate what you guys are doing because it, it allows us to kind of share the gospel of decoys. And so thank you for that. And so I'm going to continue to kind of share this, to maybe inspire people, to help them. Um, and so for myself, um, you know, I'm going to continue to make decoys for me. And, and um, but um, with my online presence, that sure is helping and inspiring a whole lot of people. And I'm going to continue to do that because, like, I get back to that one person at a time, you know. I mean, uh, for the community, I mean, it's just bringing more people into the fold of making decoys. And I'm getting to see a lot of people I've never even met before, and they're posting up decoys and uh, uh, that maybe they contacted me on and said, hey, you know, how can I fix this head or whatever, you know, or what do you think about this? I get that all the time. It's like, what do you think? I just made this first, my first worthy duck. What do you think of this? But in the community sense, I want to be, I want to be part of that community. I want to be an active member in it. I've never been one to sit much. I want to be an active member in that community and hopefully inspire some people to um, do the same that kind of like my wife did to me back in 84 I didn't I need a little confidence to get over the hump you know what I mean and and she kind of encouraged me and spurred me on and if I can do that for somebody else even if it's online um, the, even that's even that much better because I can touch a lot more people online than I can touch here in my hometown. If you got to drive to my house, we're already in trouble. <laughs> but if I if I can reach out to you online, um, we've got a chance. I've got a lot of guys in Canada. I chat with daily, actually, um, Ontario and Quebec, and you know, I I uh, 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 you know just uh, encourage them on. You know, some of them are carvers, some are not. Some of them want decoys. Some of them uh, just want to talk about hunting, you know. And so anyways, I just want to be an active member of that community. Well, I've made the drive to Chicago in uh, one day before, so uh, watch out there, Pat. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Well, hey, you're always welcome. If you ever want, if you guys, uh, and I'll I'll throw this out there, if you guys ever want to drive down and uh, in the month of March and get your hands on some bluebills, um, it's a great experience, uh, one you'll never forget. You're always welcome to come down. Um, so, uh, love to have you. And you're always welcome down to the shop. You know, if you ever want to come down and, and see, uh, you know, the carving thing, it's not that difficult. Hey, if I can do it, anybody can do it. 
<laughs> and uh, you're always welcome to come down. Tell you what, that 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 March invite sounds like a pretty warming warming thing at the the end of this uh, Winnipeg winter up here. She gets pretty chilly and, and long, so <laughs> hunting exactly. over some some water for duck sounds pretty nice. And there's probably a ribeye steak and a fat tire on the other end of that. Ooh. <laughs> An so even sweeter say, we got, deal. We got pretty good. We got pretty good beef down. Nice. So uh, I got a, 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 I guess a bit of a two-part question here for you. And um, you, you mentioned before you you're hunting over your own decoys that you've carved. And mm -hmm. about how many decoys uh, do you say you have? Do you utilize? So I have different rigs. Okay, and and um, this is one of the advantages of of carving your own decoys you know we can carve you know it used to be back in the day i mean back when i was coming up like in the 70s even the the, the it was a real limited um numbers of species of decoys that you could even get you know i mean for the most part they had like mallards and bluebills you know you could get a goose decoy but they didn't have a lot of the decoys that they have today so being a carver I mean, I've got literally um, just about every species of, of ducks in my, my rig. So I have multiple rigs. So what's a rig? Well, during arrow, I have a teal rig, okay, that has blue wings and green wings in it. And generally, I use about 30 um, teal decoys in my, in my teal rig. Um, and then once uh, September is over, we open up into our regular season and i uh, uh i'm part owner of a duck club down here on the Illinois river and we predominantly shoot puddle ducks uh at the duck club you know we shoot uh teal uh, we sh we uh, there's pintails we border a big refuge and uh uh you know we have gadwall we have mallards we have um you know shovelers we have you know occasional black duck uh, but we've got all the puddle ducks, both sets of teal, the blue wings and the green wings. Um, you know, we've got all the divers. We've got uh, six blinds on this club. So I've got a diver rig. So in my puddle duck rig, I probably put out about four to five dozen puddle ducks, maybe a few divers mixed in there. Depends what blind I'm hunting. Um, and then, um, so I've got a teal rig, a puddle duck rig. I've got a diver rig, okay? And when we hunt the Mississippi, we run long lines. I don't know if you guys have ever seen long lines, but we have long lines are, are uh, long strings of decoys where you put about a dozen decoys on a string. Uh, the, the, the mother line is about 130 foot long. And so we have a dozen decoys, and we usually put out about six lines. So my diver rig is probably about six dozen. Um, decoys and so um, not only do I have multiple rigs but I even shift the ducks that are coming down the flyway during that time I'll give you an example you know um, we generally don't see gadwall till about maybe around Thanksgiving so I'll I'll probably pull out maybe the blue wing teal they'll come out of the rig because the blue wings are gone and then I'll, I'll put some gadwall in there so I actually get down to kind of shifting what species are flying the flyway at that time. 
um, in our diver rig, you know, we generally don't see golden eyes until like December, right? So uh, you, I won't really put any golden eye decoys in the diver rig until um, maybe, you know, after Thanksgiving or early December. So I actually trade shift out decoys in and out of the rig depending on what's flying the flyway and time of year. So so it varies on number, 30 for teal, probably four to five dozen on puddle ducks and about six dozen on the divers. I don't, I, I do hunt geese. I hunt gander geese and, and uh, snow geese, but I, I do use uh, plastic decoys for those because full body, uh, a hand carved full body rig would be way too much to manage. <laughs> I bet. So, obviously, you might have a bit of a biased answer on this, but uh, putting your decoys up against today's um, today's mass-produced decoy. Sure. You think you're going to sure. shoot just as many birds over your spread as uh, as as say uh, spread with the you know the the flocked heads and all that jazz? Sure. I mean, honestly, it's probably a wash, to be honest, real honest with you. But what I will say is this, is, and I've seen it firsthand, because I do, I do get out with some buddies that hunt plastics. Um, Hand-carved decoys move. I mean, there's something about them. You know, the way they're carved, they got some extra weight to them. I mean, there's just, when you, if you were to see my rig out on the water, with a little bit of wind coming across that marsh, a little bit of chop on the water, they move. I mean, they just, they don't just sit there and float. They move. And so what I do like is I think they're more lifelike. I really do. And the fact that I can turn the heads and, and um, uh, you know, I can uh, maybe carve species. Like, for example, I've got ruddy ducks in my rig. You can't buy a commercially made ruddy duck. You can't. You know, and so um, I that means that's important to me, you know, because uh, we shoot we shoot a few ruddy ducks heck over on the river. You know, there's times when there'll be 10,000 ruddy ducks over there and the way they come through our layout rig is pretty phenomenal. So uh, so um, I like the way they move, but is it going to buy me more birds? I'm not sure about that. That could certainly be a deal closer, though, for some some uh, some birds. If you know you have that unique species that everyone else is out there banging away at that doesn't have in their spread, I think that well, yeah. that could be a a TSN turning point <laughs> in the guy's duck sure. season. We'll say. Sure, sure. Well, you know, even when we um, hey, when we're at the boat ramp, like if we're hunting divers and we're at the boat ramp, you know, and in in Maybe you've got multiple rigs there and people are just standing there making small talk and all of a sudden they look in the back of your boat and they go, are these hand-carved decoys? Yeah. Did you make these? Yeah. Did you make all of them? You made these decoys. And you and you and they can't believe I even throw them on the water. <laughs> and, you know, but there's a, certain, there's a certain element of pride to it, I'm just going to say. You know, there's a certain element of, hey, yeah, um, it's kind of like, like I said, it's kind of like catching that trout on that fly, you know. 
there's just a certain element of pride. It's like it's like training that retriever and he gets his first retrieve. You know, it's just there's just a certain element of pride to it, and um, and that's that's you know the benefit for the carver. You know, you get to enjoy that, um, and uh, that that's that's important to me. I know. Well, I think that for sh- you've kind of inspired this definitely um, aspiration of maybe not this year, but hopefully next year. I I could see Chase and I cut hunting over at least one carved decoy. Um, you know, uh, something something to throw out there that could uh, resemble a duck, and I think hopefully that's a step in the right direction. Uh, Pat, I want to thank you so much for coming on to the show today and uh, sharing your knowledge. Uh, one thing we do before we depart here is we just kind of do a final go around between ourselves and the guest and just, uh, we call it our final final. So we do a little wrap up of thoughts to uh, yeah. to just kind of tie a bow on the episode. So uh, um, Sheldon uh, hasn't uh, chimed in for a little while. So I'd, I'd love to welcome Sheldon to kind of just start us off on the final final. Yeah, sure. You guys hear me all right, Dave? Perfectly. Yep. Okay, good, because I've been having some uh, technical difficulties here. But, um, yeah, Pat, like this this episode is actually, for me, like personally, I, I don't do like water marsh type hunting as, as much as I do agriculture land with, uh, you know, layout blinds and, and all your decoys for Canada's and then, uh, you know, a couple maybe, you know, a couple duck decoys or what have you. So all this is very, very interesting, and, and it actually brings back a lot of memories of laying out in those blinds and how, you know, hunting is kind of, uh, it's been evolutionized for myself and, and for my father and stuff and to the point where, you know, he was teaching me all these things and he was setting up the decoys and he was doing all this stuff while I kind of was messing around. And now it's like the opposite. Like I'm setting mm-hmm. everything up and he's giving me shit and, you know, all that <laughs> other stuff. So, but oh. on, a, on a lighter side of thing, before I take off uh, or before we end this is what, what would you think is your favorite duck blind snack? Oh, that's easy. Payday candy bar. <laughs> oh, Payday awesome. candy bar. There's no, there's none better, man. I tell you, you can eat one. You can keep that thing in your pocket for three weeks, and uh, you eat half of that thing, and you're full for the day. So, that's a, no charge for that. Right on. Yeah. Well, on, on from me myself. Yeah. Thank you very much for coming on. I had it was a great time just listening, and even though I couldn't uh, uh, talk that much, but yeah, thanks a lot. Yeah, you're welcome. Uh, my final thought here, Pat, is just a bit more of a question, and I'm just curious if uh, if you if there's one decoy you've carved, or maybe a, a group of decoys that really sticks out to you of, out of all those decoys you've carved through your history. Oh wow, yeah, that's a good one. You know, it, it'd probably be my first uh, rig of bluebill decoys. Um, they're, they're actually um, back from the '90s, and they're pretty beat. I mean, honestly, most people look at them and just probably turn their head to them, but they mean a lot to me because they've been a lot of places with me, and um, they, they've uh, they've lured a lot of ducks in, and, um, you know, um, I've had people try to buy them, and it's like, no, not everything's for sale in life, and mm-hmm. these, because these are kind of precious to me, so it'd be that, it'd be that first rig of bluebills I made. And my final final here, Pat, is uh, just thanks for joining us tonight. Um, 
like you mentioned earlier, reaching out on on social media and electronically and and us over this podcast to people is just a has been an incredible journey for us. And I'm, you said it's been quite incredible your way also. And um, I just want to say thanks for what you're doing and just man, keep it up because you're you're making. You're making a wave in the, in the in the outdoor world, and that wave is gonna create another wave through another, hopefully, generation of folks, and and uh, just keep the waves going, man. I love it. Yeah. Well, hey, I appreciate that, and same to you guys, though. You know, I mean, hey, um, here we are tonight. You guys are in Manitoba. I'm here in Illinois. We're having a conversation about um, you know things that we love, and and you keep you keep the same, right? You know, reach out to people. Um, hey, don't uh, don't hold back. You know, I mean, there's a lot of people that have a story that uh, you know needs to be shared, and all of us benefit from that. So I'm just thankful that you guys reached out to me. Any way I can help our cause? Um, hey, look me up. You know where I'm at now, and um, you know we'll uh, um, you know keep fighting a good fight because uh, it's worth, it's worth fighting for, fellas. Are we going to let Pat get out of here without telling a good hunting story? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't know. We didn't ask him, eh? Oh, my, a good hunting story. Do you have one in the pocket there? Oh, golly. Um, well, um, I'll tell you one of my favorite hunting stories. Actually, when we were at the marsh in 2014, um, I don't know if you know Fred Greenslade up there. Uh, Fred's from Portage. He uh, he used to be the photographer for Delta, but he was also the photographer for the Winnipeg Jets. And so Fred's a big hockey guy, huge hockey fan. And so we were out on the marsh one day, me and Paul Waite and Fred. Fred took us uh, out in the marsh one day, and he was – Un, he, he like, I mean, I I, got, I shot out early. He and Paul had a couple more ducks to get. The sun was coming down, and these teal were just buzzing us like literally like mosquitoes. They were everywhere, and Fred was like, he was on fire, man. I mean, there were there were teal buzzing every which direction, and Fred would shoot over here and he'd miss this one, he'd miss this one. He he looked like he was on a turret. You know, and uh, he looked like a gunner that was on a tour. And and uh, I told him, I said, Fred, you you look like, uh, you, you, I mean, he's like a goalie. I mean, it's like these pucks are coming at him. It, it was just it was just the thing to watch Fred try to get this last teal, and it never happened. You know, I mean, before you knew it, the sun was down, and it was I was just sitting there laughing. I was enjoying it, and it, it was a beautiful setting, and uh, we were in the marsh. Uh, I was with friends. We were all laughing, and we left there. We had a great day, and just to watch Fred shoot, shoot to try to get that last teal like he was a machine gunner, I'm telling you, man, I was just I, – I, I think I broke a rib laughing. It was just, he, he looked like a uh, – 
he looked like a duck hunter with a hockey stick. I'm telling you, <laughs> man, that's funny. I, I could, I, it's almost a bit too relatable though, because I've been on those early season teal hunts up here. And, uh, the, if those are the first birds you're shooting at all season, uh, I, I've been behind more than one teal in my day. I will, I will say, I will admit to that. Um, and Pat, you might've jettisoned yourself to the number one podcast guest on this show by, uh, mentioning the Winnipeg Jets. So thank you for that as well. (laughs) Hey, that's, you know, that's not easy being in Blackhawk country, you know? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I believe you got a good Winnipeg boy down there though. Johnny Taves though. So, uh, we'll, we'll forgive you for that one. Um, we love it. But, uh, thanks so much for coming on the show. Uh, just deeply appreciative of all your knowledge that you've been able to share and uh, we'll continue to watch you on Facebook and uh, thanks. Thanks again. All right, man. Take care now. Take care. Hey, Pat. Still there? Yeah. 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 So, so we do kind of like a false goodbye. I guess we could have warned you about that one, but uh, (laughs) um, yeah, we just a debrief at the end here. Just, uh, yeah, we thought we, it went really well. And, uh, We'll we'll snag your address off you in the future there to uh, uh, pretty soon here. We'll send you down a hat. It's just a small, small token of our appreciation. Thank you. Thank you. You know, if I can make a recommendation too, you know, uh, one thing, uh, and I and I haven't talked to him about it, but one thing you may want to do is um, if you want to get a little bit more into the history of Delta, uh, Paul Waite is a good friend of mine. Paul works for Delta. He's the editor for the magazine Easer Communications Director. But Paul's the one writing the book on Delta. And right now he is like literally steeped. He is like filled to the brim on Delta history. And uh I've been I've been um just uh proofing some of these chapters for him of the book, you know? Yeah. But uh it might make uh, uh sense at some point in time Paul is great in the industry he's he's a big presence out there in the industry and uh he might be a good one to get on your podcast uh just to get a little bit more from the delta history side you know if you're if you're interested in that because it 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 was enlightening to me just reading some of these chapters some of the things that uh delta has really done and is noted for it's amazing so you know if you want to get in touch with paul let me know and I can hook you up with them. Yeah, for sure. I I know uh, we we really enjoyed the one we did with Scott and Bob there. So, um, and then you're able to add a little context here. And then, you know, I think it would make sense that down the line, if we did one with Paul, especially like you said, since he's so steeped in it right now, uh, you know, that could be something that's valuable for our listeners as well. So the book is due out in 2021. So I think, I think he's supposed to have the book ready by like the end of this year. So timing, you know, you may want to work on timing, but uh, it'll be a a nice, a nice uh, piece on, of, of not only for Delta, but for Manitoba, because it's just going to be a great um, summary of the history um, that's happened there. So, uh, and, and Paul's great. He's, he's, uh, uh, yeah, he, he's a former sports editor. He covered like the Packers and stuff like that. So he's he's good with media. I think you'd find him enjoyable. Great, that that might work out really nice. And we can uh, maybe pitch the book and uh, get a little insight, and then uh, it could all kind of tie together there as it as the book's coming out. Sure. Well, when you guys are ready for something like that, just shoot me a message, and I'll I'll hook you up with them. 
Okay. Thanks so much, Pat. And uh, we might we might snag a few pics from your social media if that's okay to when this episode pops up. It's all yours. Help yourself. It, it, you know, if you need something a better quality, you just shoot me a message. I'll send it to you. Yeah, and in the same, if you're partial to any kind of picture that you have lying around, uh, you think it caught your right side or something like that, let us know, and we're we're happy to share that one too. Okay. Well, thanks so much for coming on. Uh, good luck uh, in the upcoming season here, and hopefully the the carvings are going good. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and hey, thanks for doing it. You guys are doing a great job. I had a lot of fun, and I do appreciate what you're doing. You know, we're all in this together, and uh, just keep moving us forward and um, sharing the story, Um, and uh, uh, thanks for what you're doing. Thanks so much for listening. That brings us to the end of our conversation with Pat Gregory. Again, be sure to follow him on Facebook, and... uh, also, don't forget to follow us on Facebook. Give us a like. Give us a comment. All that stuff helps. One thing I do want to update you guys on is uh, we freshened up the stock at Harvester Outdoors for hats. So uh, I believe we pretty much have our full lineup there. Go check them out. And one thing I love about Harvester is they're constantly getting new stuff in there and like the latest and greatest stuff. And he is getting in a bunch of smith game calls he has a little bit of their stuff in right now but he's getting a bunch of their elk stuff and some of their some of their deer hunting stuff in too and uh they're a company of alberta i believe which so which is cool uh supports them canadian companies local local company harvester obviously so I know I'm going to be heading down there to uh load up on some diaphragm calls for elk season and get myself a new background tube and so before you go or Sheldon you have something out there yeah just uh I'm just one more little notable thing there's uh you know an incident in Riding Mountain there this week with a with a with a lady that got I wouldn't say attacked by a bear but got you know hit by a bear she got um, scratched up as Steve Ranella would say yeah so just like just you know just a reminder just to be careful when you're out in those trails and walking around and I mean, she, like, I was actually talking to her today and yesterday about it a little bit, trying to, like, we might do a podcast with her. And, you know, she was saying, like, she walks with four or five dogs all the time. Like, she's got a pack of dogs. So you can never be too careful and just, you know, just a heads up, just to be safe. Good reminder. And uh, other good reminders that we might uh, like to share with you folks keep your powder dry, keep those lines tight, keep your edge sharp. See ya. Have a good one. Bye.